Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I'm pleased to say that our first compilation episode of Staffer Stories was so popular that we're doing another one. These stories have all come in through our hotline, which remains open for anyone who wants to call in. That number, again, is 888-416-2132. The stories can be about anything, a lesson learned, an achievement accomplished, a memorable experience, a project gone wrong, an important mentor, or really anything else. I find the work lives of staffers really interesting and funny and impactful and touching. And based on the response uh, to this podcast and to these story episodes, I know many other people do too. So please keep the stories coming. As you'll hear, we keep the stories anonymous and they can be any length. I'll just note that if you do call in to the hotline, the recording cuts off after four minutes. And if it does on you, just call back in and finish the story. Okay, that's all for now. Here are the stories for our second Staffer Hotline episode. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. I was uh, John Bryant's chief of staff for 14 years, and I have a really screwed up uh, story for you that uh, I didn't tell anybody for a long time. So I was John's chief of staff, and we had the greatest office manager in the history of time. Her name is Carol Jordan, who's unfortunately passed away now. But Carol knew, we used to joke that she could uh, squeeze the buffalo off of a nickel, but she knew how to do things. She'd been on the Hill a long time before that, but she knew how to make money, squeeze, and go far. But Carol was the kind of person that wouldn't ever say no or you can't do that or all that type of stuff. But she would come along and go, you know, you, you've got, you're spending a lot of money right now. You probably should slow down. So it was a cycle. I don't remember what year it was, but it was kind of fairly early in the John's career. We were there 14 years. And along the way, John kept wanting to do town hall meetings, town hall meetings, town hall meetings. I think the previous election, we had a close race in the Dallas area. And, you know, I would try to talk him out of it, but, you know, he'd like, no, we got to do town hall meetings. So we, you know, we had to pay out of the MRA for all this uh, town hall meetings and mail and all that kind of stuff. So we were doing town hall meetings and we're doing a lot of mail and doing mail, doing mail. And Carol, you know, would like in late March go, you know, we're spending a lot of money. You probably should slow down. I go, okay, Carol. And I would try to slow down. And the next thing you know, there'd be more town halls, more printing. And so about June or July, Carol came again. There were a number of times between that March and July, but she came into my office or, you know, there weren't, wasn't much of a private office and came back and goes, listen, we're, we're about to be completely broke. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, we're, we don't, we're not going to have enough money to get through the year. And I go, wait a minute. What are you talking about? So she laid it out to me. And I said, okay. I was in complete panic. So I uh, said, okay, tomorrow we're going to my house. We're going to sit down and figure this out. So that afternoon, I called my best friend. Uh, her name is Carol Steenland at that point, who worked for Gephardt. I said, Carol, meet me at the Hawking Dove. So we met there for a late lunch, and I said, Carol, I've got to resign. I have completely screwed up. We're broke. And the rules are, you know, the money comes out of the member's pocket. I go, John is going to kill me on top of that. John doesn't have money. That's not his thing. He's not a rich guy. And Carol convinced me I would figure it out. So the next day, 
Carol and I went to my house. We sat at my kitchen table, and we completely, you know, ripped the budget apart, did things, you know, canceled publications, all these things. Um, we struck a deal with some friends who were like, hey, you know, we loaned copy, copy paper to the next year and things like that. And kind of luckily, about that time, we had someone depart. So I drug my feet on hiring anyone. And again, I never told the story to John Bryan until years later. But I drug my feet on hiring someone. You know, I got through a couple months and I have to paying someone for that. Drug my feet on some other town hall meetings. But came up with some other ideas for John. And so that's pretty much the story. It was it was scary. We made it through. You know, I was always the the guy that like I didn't re- return but a nickel at the end of the year anyway. I don't think anybody gives a hoot about that. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think anybody's had an election decided on how much money they returned to the treasury, and a lot of people think that. But we made it through. Uh, then, you, actually, during this pandemic, we've done a lot of – the Bryant staff has stayed very close over all these years. And on a Zoom call during the pandemic, I – actually, nobody even on the staff knew this story except Carol Jordan and myself and my friend Carol Steenland uh, for years. And so on a Zoom call early in the pandemic, I told the story to everybody, including John Bryant. And he laughed it off but said he was glad that I found a way he didn't have to pay a penny out of his pocket. Anyway, I learned to listen to the office manager and to budget way better than I did in those days. And I am a former campaign and White House staffer who's now at Emily's List. I spent a lot of time in research and opposition research and rapid response, which taught me a few important things about the moments when you or your boss or your campaign has royally screwed up. I think the important thing is that in those moments when it feels like the world is collapsing on you and you're never going to be able to recover, you need to know that life goes on. These days, for a candidate, for um, for a staffer, there are no more silver bullets in politics. The world moves on from mistakes. And if you've made the mistake, you will move on too. The first thing to think through is how you're going to respond to the mistake. This is true if it's your candidate or if it's something you did that royally screwed up. Make sure that you're thinking through the situation now and how it could change. Figure out who needs to know about what happened and what you're doing to fix it and communicate with them. Don't communicate with everyone. Hit your target audience. And remember that the world keeps moving even when you are obsessing over a mistake or an attack. Here's the thing. Whatever is top of mind for you is way down the list for most people. So keep doing the work. Keep moving. There's always a next step for everyone after a mistake. You just have to find it. I didn't take the same route to working on the Hill as most people. I came from a design and technical background and spent most of my time in the Senate designing charts and backdrops, putting together web pages, and setting up press events. I was a political junkie, though, so I would always jump at any chance to work directly with senators. One of those opportunities was the weekly caucus lunch, where the big boss, Senator Daschle, would meet with the rest of the caucus about what was going on that week and what was coming up. They'd have lively and candid discussions, and it was a privilege to be in that room because only a handful of staff were allowed in there. A few high-level policy wonks and me. They were there to answer deep-dive questions about legislation and strategy. I was there to make sure the PowerPoint worked, which it always did. Almost always. After dozens of these meetings that finally happened, Senator Daschle was clicking through his presentation when the monitor suddenly went black. 
sprung into action. While Dashwell continued speaking, I was on the floor fiddling with the computer, checking connections, and I even restarted it. The obvious goal was to get it working as quickly as possible, but to accomplish this, I knew I couldn't look back at Dashwell because he might give me the just leave it look before I could get it fixed, and that would be really bad. I was also desperately trying not to look at the other people in the room because the other people in the room were Ted Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, the rest of the caucus, and all their chairs were pointed directly at me. After what seemed like forever, probably just a few minutes, I fixed the problem, cued the presentation up to where it should be, and sat back down in my spot next to Mark Patterson, the other big boss, who gave me a grin and said, good job. That was it. It was a nice anecdote of calm under pressure and getting the job done, something I'd like to think was my thing and largely forgotten about, or so I thought. Several years later, after Dashiell lost his 2004 race, we had a staff reunion. At some point in the evening, Mark Patterson gave a short speech in which he described a time when a thankfully unnamed staffer was scrambling around the floor at the caucus lunch trying to and eventually fixing the computer while Dashiell glared daggers in the back of his head. I don't recall the point of Mark's story. I just remember being the star of it. But what I do know, and what I never told him or any of my coworkers, is exactly what the problem was that I fixed that day. It seems that during the presentation, I had shifted in my seat slightly, causing the chair leg to gently tug the monitor cable just enough to sever the connection to the computer. I had fixed a problem that I had created, and not only did I get away with it, I got kudos for fixing it. If you have kids, you'll recognize this as the plot of every Curious George story. Later at the party, when I was getting my picture taken with Dashiell, you can't have a DC event without a photographer. I told him, you know, I was that staffer Mark was talking about. He laughed and said, I know, Brian. Thanks for getting that fixed. You did a great job. So, Senator Dashiell, if you're listening, uh, sorry, that was my bad. In 2018, I was working as Democratic uh, candidate, Ned Lamont, uh, who was running for governor of the state of Connecticut. It was a large field that we were working from January uh, 2018 to narrow down. And eventually, uh, by uh, you know May, going into the August primary, we had successfully narrowed the field to two candidates. It was us and a scrappy uh, fighter who was uh, excellent at retail politics named Joe Gannon, who was mayor of Bridgeport, and Ned Lamont. And we were doing a really great job of building momentum with our campaign, getting support from elected leaders, uh, labor unions, teachers, nurses, uh, healthcare workers, uh, construction trades, and we had more than we could think of. And um, you know, going into the you know, the debates, uh, Mayor Gannon was trying to paint Ned as an out of touch millionaire, as he was uh, a successful business uh, owner who was self-funding his campaign, but really had some excellent policies to uh, help uplift middle-class families. But um, Joe was telling people that, you know, Ned had 12 bathrooms. He couldn't relate to you and me. And we were going to beat back those claims uh, in the final debate, as this claim had been dogging us for the last couple of weeks. And we've done a lot of you know research on Joe's policies, ways we could promote Ned's policies, a lot of debate prep and, uh, you know, going through you know, various game tapes and footage and, and uh, doing debate prep with uh, Ned beforehand. So he came uh, whistling down the hallway, and uh, those of you who may know Ned know that he is king of the dad joke. He said, uh, if Joe brings up my bathrooms tonight, I'm going to tell him, how else do you think I got the plumbers and pipe fitters union? 
And we chuckled and went back to, uh, you know, our paperwork and reviewing the footage and coming up with, uh, you know, arguments and rebuttals. Later that night, like clockwork, the moderator said, uh, you know, the two of you have painted one another as, you know, the true candidate for the middle class, while Joe, you've painted Ned as uh, out of touch. They asked the question that they always do in Democratic primaries, how much is the price of milk? Before giving the correct answer of $3, Ned said, you know, Joe, the topic of bathrooms have come up a lot in this campaign. And I'd like folks to know that, yeah, how else do you think I got the support of the Plumbers and Pipefitters Union? And we laughed. He stuck the landing, did a great job. And, uh, you know, because of the format of the debate, Joe couldn't respond to it. Uh, we went back to the war room, getting ready for, uh, you know, the next day and uh, you know, preparing for the, the final couple of weeks of the campaign. Until that next morning, we got a call from a TV reporter who had said, hey, um, what's your response to Joe Gannon and the plumbers who demand an apology? We kind of scratched our heads and said, you know, apology for what? And they said, uh, not only did uh, you misrepresent uh, the plumbers and pipe fitters uh, for who they were supporting, uh, but they want you to apologize because they're actually backing Joe Gannon. And we were totally mortified and caught off guard as that was the one union that we had not earned the support of. And later that afternoon, Joe was holding a big rally with the plumbers and pipe fitters calling on us to apologize and correct the record. And, you know, it was a great lesson in one, no matter how many supporters you have or union support you have or elected leaders you have, make sure you've got them organized and know who's actually supporting you and who's not. And two, uh, laughter does not mean an endorsement for a joke uh, or, a, a, you know, a, a, a claim that someone should make. Anytime Ned tests out material now, I'm sure not to laugh, but I think it's something he shouldn't say publicly. And uh, it's a great opportunity for me to uh, learn how he tests his material out or pilots, uh, you know, some ideas that he may have. But I'm always sure to say I wouldn't say that to an audience. And that's my snapper story. Well, friends, the clock's just buzzed four times and the Marine Sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.